Welcome to ContenderCast, a global leadership and consumer industries entrepreneurship podcast centered on shining a light on bright ideas. And now, here's your host, Justin Hahnemann. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for downloading. It's Justin Hahnemann on the ContenderCast. We're shining a light on bright ideas today. You're going to be so hungry after you hear about the biscuits, scones, rolls, and so much more from this brand called Mason Dixie. You're going to love my guest today. I mean, she's unbelievable. Like, I, There's not even enough time in our episode today to cover all the cool things she's done in her background, but we're going to try to hit as much as we can. Um, welcome, Asha Apalika, onto today's podcast. Asha, it is so great having you here. Thank you for having me. It's so amazing. I have so okay. One of my favorite things about hosting this podcast is I get to, you know, research and get to know the guests, which is a lot of fun. And I mean, I had so much fun with you learning about your background and your story and this brand and how it's grown. And I mean, oh my gosh, it's so really, really cool. I can't wait to jump in. So, all right. Um, I'm not going to tell the story you are. So let's do this. Before you get to start in Mason, Mason Dixie, share a little bit of just about your background and the space you're in around communications, PR, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, actually, you know, a child of immigrants. My parents were super hardworking um, and pretty much owned anything from corner stores to little delis. Um, you know, a lot of entrepreneurship in my background um, as they kind of tried to make their American dream work out. So, um, you know, I grew up relatively poor. We grew up in Section 8 housing um, here in Baltimore. And, but, you know, I think in the end, it really kind of taught me a lot about access and how important it is to, you know, really provide resources to folks that are at that level. And it's kind of been this thing that's been in the back of my mind since I got started. You know, every, every immigrant kid, every second gen kid, um, you know, people of color, they always have their parents say, oh, you need to be a doctor. You got to be a lawyer because, <laughs> right. you know, that's all they knew were jobs that you know, generated wealth. Um, and the reality is, is because they didn't even have access to business people that were successful or, you know, accountants that were successful. So like those aren't even options in their mind. Right. So, totally. um, definitely something that I think kind of spurred this entrepreneurship bone in my body. Cause it was what, it was what I had access to, right. Watching sure. my parents do it. Well, and, but you, and that's amazing. And I do think, you know, we're all product of our upbringing and we have opportunities, right. To learn from them mm -hmm. and to, to grow and make decisions as we get older, you know, how to, how to leverage what we learned, um, in our upbringing. And you certainly have done that here now before starting Mason Dixon, <laughs> Mason Dixon, I'm sure that you, you say that all the time when people mix that up, but Mason sure. Dixie, um, you were spent a lot of time in business development. You were working for brands and whatnot in the space, working for a lot of big companies. Like how did you decide to go from that type of, of focus in your career to starting your own business? Yeah. So, you know, I was the first kid in my family to go to college. That was very important. Um, but, you know, in the end, again, my parents didn't have money. So outside of scholarship money, I had to really make my right, own way. Your own way. Um, sure. Yeah. So I, I ended up working, you know, four jobs at a time between a work study job, a quote unquote white collar job, and then two restaurant jobs to make ends meet. That's kind of how, you know, I really started staying afloat and kind of trying to, you know, figure my way out. Like I didn't have the luxury of just interning on the hill right. or, you know, studying <laughs> totally. abroad. Right. That's, so, um, yeah. So I ended up, you know, trying to 
rotate through as many unpaid internships or low paid internships to get exposure. Again, access is important. Um, But then, you know, restaurants really kind of kept me going. It's where I made the most money. It's also where I felt at home because, you know, you walk into an environment where people from all over the country, all over the world, right? Spanish is a second language in a totally, restaurant. Totally. Um, so I felt very much at home there. And it was a it was a nice place to go after school or after one of my other jobs. Um, but, you know, I, I ultimately didn't know that, that my parents would be proud of me for being in food. So I like, you know, I ignored that as a pathway for the longest time. Sure. I, you know, did the white collar thing and I ended up launching myself into a career in um, tech and automotive consulting for a very long time, about 15 years. I know, years. I saw that, like product development yeah. and whatnot. You had some really cool roles, by the way. Yeah, yeah, but in all did. linked to communication, which I that was kind of my common theme, I thought. Connected vehicles and just the, how you totally. use technology. I thought that was amazing. Well, it's interesting because um, I think one of the things I noticed really quickly was that uh, you can make a lot of money and get a lot of experience if you speak English, not like the language English. Like if you can translate like in engineering nerd speak into <laughs> right. layman's, you can you know, a, it was cross the line between technology and business. I love it. Totally. And that's such a necessary <laughs> so role. Funny. So I, you know, found a home that way. But at the end of the day, um, you know, I advanced really quickly in my career. I'm a pretty ambitious person. And, you know, my final stint was at Audi. You know, I, I was the pinnacle of my career. It's where I wanted to be. I wanted to be at a luxury brand. I wanted to learn how that whole world worked, how you make somebody believe that the same chunk of metal, you know, that a Toyota or a General Motors car is made of for some reason is worth more. Right. right. Um, and so, it's you got know, a cool logo on it. Yeah, there right. you go. So, yeah, why, why the logo? You know, all these things. And I, it really kind of cemented in me that, like, this is my passion because I want to use it for something. I wanted to, you know, burn the midnight oil for myself. Right. And, you know, got into a place where I realized in these male dominated fields, they were still just not ready for women in leadership roles. And I was going to have to rot away for 10, 15 more years <sighs> to qualify for some of those positions. So I said, I can't do this. It's so, so I, ridiculous. Like- I, um, yeah, I left it and I decided I was going to jump off that ship and start my own ship and ended up launching Mason Dixie. That's so cool. I mean, you make it sound so easy, but you're right. I mean, (laughs) it's so, and it's amazing to hear you say that. I mean, because I've heard this from a couple of different entrepreneurs on our podcast that, you know, you get to a point where it's like, if I want to do more here or I want to do specific things here, I got to wait X number of years, you know, because I'm working for the the structured big brand or or company, like, and versus having control over your career or taking an idea and bringing it to life, which of course you've done here. Um, How did you though make it's one thing to talk about it and think about it and you know to sit sit and make your resolution to to do something but it's another to actually start a business so where did the idea from mason dixie come along and like how what was the initial seed yeah so um i think again being in comms and working in tech for a long time you know the power of communication and technology merging is transformational and so when i got started on the concept i really thought back to first where was the need in the market? And at that time, I was still thinking, I wanted to definitely own a restaurant, right? So Mason Dixie actually started out as a restaurant concept. And, you know, I was in DC at the time. So, you know, DC had this burgeoning food scene, but I wasn't a chef, right? And I, you know, at that point, you know, um, Top Chef and all those crazy, like, reality shows really kicking off. So everyone was into food. (laughs) And (laughs) if you didn't have, you know, a killer resume or a TV script ready, you know, it's harder to make a start. So I, I was like, all right, how am I going to get the attention that I deserve around the concept? So first things first, conceptually, 
nothing will ever outsell pizza, burgers, and fried chicken. Like ever, <laughs> ever. Like nice. I don't care what anyone tells you. Or like fries, salads are great. Yeah. But at the end of the day, comfort food wins. Right. But I was just really flabbergasted when I really thought about it. Like when I really started to think about a, a Southern concept, right? I, I couldn't even buy free range chicken, right? Cause that was only <laughs> reserved for five-star restaurants, <laughs> right. you know? Right. So like that wasn't a thing. I couldn't even find a biscuit that was clean ingredient wise. So I was mortified about that. So I realized I was like, well, no wonder this industry sucks. Like everyone's eating absolute <laughs> crap. So I have to be transformational even for my own concept. Like we got to make everything from scratch. We got to look at, you know, returning to our roots here, like Southern cuisine was the true farm to table cuisine. You know, it was sadly enough picked by slaves and cooked by slaves. So, you know, that the root of that cuisine can't get any fresher and, you know, it was bastardized. Right. Um, so I wanted to make sure that we returned to the roots of Southern cuisine, that we really thought through the health, you know, scares that, you know, the big, the big guys, KFC, Chick-fil-A, I mean, what they're putting into these people's bodies in mass quantities. Um, so I was like, all right, well, we have, we have a mission here, right? We have a mission to clean this up and we have a mission to make this affordable and accessible to everyone. I don't want it to be five-star chicken. Right. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And so I was thinking, okay, well, what's the platform for us to go out there knowing that I'm not a top chef, knowing that I'm not a DC born and bred culinary expert. How am I going to do this? And at that time, um, a little thing called Kickstarter had just started and, you know, back then it was still very 1-800 my idea, right. Very invention oriented. I was one of maybe two food concepts on there at the time. Um, and you know, I knew it was going to be big because the, the power to leverage social media, SEO, and just exposure to all these press outlets was quick. Huge. Absolutely. Yeah. And it gave me, you know, really good market data to say, okay, Asha, your dream of owning a hundred Mason Dixies is real because people in California want it. So got I had it. to make sure people in California wanted it. And this it. is so, when it was still a restaurant concept, right? It wasn't, it wasn't, yeah, got it. Perfect. Correct. Yeah. So, so started Kickstarter, we were successfully funded and from, I think 357 backers all over the country. And like I said, it wasn't about the money. It was about the market exposure and sure. the, you know, the profundity that yes, we had a concept that could sell anywhere in the country. And so that's really what kind of gave us the fuel. But, you know, one, one piece of advice that, you know, I give any founder entrepreneur is you don't stop if you're hot. Right. So <laughs> you don't people do it all the time. <laughs> right. Yeah. They're like, Oh, I don't oh have we're the off money. and running now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like you have to push and you have to keep pushing. So the second that the Kickstarter um, was funded, you know, we got pressed for it. And then all these people were like, Oh, where can I get it? Where can I get it? And I'm like, Oh my God. I was like, the whole point of the Kickstarter was to create a proof of concept, which could take months. Right. Like that was Absolutely. the point. Um, but you know, it didn't stop. And I was like, all right, how do I get food in people's mouths? And ended up partnering with this really awesome, you know, gelato factory, Dolceza down in DC. They had this, um, factory that would basically produce all their gelato and they had a little coffee lab, like a Sumptown coffee lab. And so I said, Hey, in exchange for bringing new people here, you know, you sell coffee and gelato, I'll sell biscuits and this will be great exposure. And they were like, yeah, sure. Let's do it. So, you know, we launched our first pop-up and there was a line wrapped around four city blocks and it was at seven 30 in the morning and it was still the hood, right? It wasn't like the most up and coming neighborhood at the time. So to see that many people outside, it right. was like, okay. insane. I have to ask you, so how did people even know about it though? Like, how did they know about your product at that point? 
I mean, I really, when the Kickstarter was going, I, I mean, people also realize like they need to see that Kickstarter is a great tool, but it requires a lot of TLC. Like I was on for 30 days, I was online maybe 24 hours a day, like literally nonstop answering comments, trying to make sure that you're constantly up in the news and in the feed sure. and, you know, gathering social media momentum. So that was really helpful because we just kind of created our own little mini audience. And, you know, mind you, I thought we were going to have like 60 people. I thought that would be amazing. You know, five or six dozen biscuits, you know, sure. we'll be fine. So and that's Never, what this ever. is still okay. It's still restaurant concept, but you were were you offering the biscuits, rolls, and scones? Then was that the whole idea? No, no. We were literally just like, here's some awesome sandwiches that we're going to serve at the <laughs> oh restaurant, right? So like, that is you know, funny. It was crazy. So you know, regardless, it was a huge success, and that led to our first pop up at Union Market just down the street. And that momentum kept going. Like I said, when you're hot, you keep you keep it up, and sure. you know, we had lines, and we were selling out, and so. Once, I think it was a couple months in, we sold out on a Sunday, like at 1030 in the morning. So we had some really awesome loyal customers that, you know, came at 11 usually. And they were like, whoa, Gone. you're sold out. Right. Wish I could get the biscuits and I just bake them at home. And then I had these disgruntled customers that were like, I came all the way here and I can't believe you're sold out. Why don't you just sell me the dough? I'll make this at home. <laughs> And you know, I was like, <laughs> yeah, and I was like, okay, well, all right, let's let's just try something. It's better than like a tchotchke, right? It's better than a t-shirt, right? So maybe we can. So against my pastry chef's volitions, I, <laughs> I stole some pucks and I threw them on a baking sheet, put them in the freezer. Right. And the next day I baked them off and they were gorgeous and oh. they puffed up even better. Now, I, why, did he initially, we why did he initially say, don't do that? Or what was the... Be yeah. Well, the whole premise of being fresh, right? And his mind was like, oh, if we're not making them the day of, then they're not, uh, fresh. not fresh. But I was Got like, it. there's nothing fresher than a frozen anything. There's no preservatives in freezing. Right. Right. All you're doing is preserving the state of the dough. He was worried it wasn't going to rise. And Got then it ended it. up being that it rose even better. Now through the, you know, six and a half years, seven years you've been doing this, I'm right. like more intelligently, <laughs> so you know, capable of knowing why biscuits rise when they're cold. But, you know, it was, it was transformational. So the next day, you know, I go to Bed Bath & Beyond looking for inspo of how to, you know, make these things happen. And I bought myself a $100 food saver machine. Nice. And I started vacuum sealing off these half dozens. And and mind you, we were in an 80 square foot stall with like one outlet. So there was <laughs> right. no one freezer. Oh, yeah. So we had to like haul a, um, an igloo cooler in with ice and fill it with these biscuits. And lo and behold, you know, those, those frozen biscuits sold out faster than the hot sandwiches. And that's when I was like, all right, this is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, one of the stories I read was that you actually had to, at at one point, rent out an old restaurant and drive through to be able to, to scale. Like how did, how did that happen? Yeah. So, um, Whole Foods discovered us at that market. And, um, right, you know, a secret again, shopper, right? Is that what I secret read? Secret shopper. Yep. Yeah. Totally unplanned was like, I want these at Whole Foods. How quickly can you get me samples? And <laughs> she was like merchandising. <laughs> yeah. But she was, you know, scarily merchandising these like vacuum seal bags. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'll, I'll figure this out. We'll, <laughs> right. we'll get some product to you. So the first day we launched was the day before Thanksgiving in 2015. And we sold out of like 150 boxes in three hours. And that went viral through Whole Foods. And all of a sudden, now we were faced with like demand. Massive demand. Surging. Yeah. Every store, please. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, and you don't say no. Again, if you're hot, you keep going. Mm -hmm. And um, we ended up saying like, hey, we can't keep doing this in the space we have. Like we need more space. Like we were in a shared commercial kitchen doing all this prep. 
And, you know, they, even the freezer situation was really challenging. I mean, they, they built the plan thinking there was plenty of freezer space. They didn't plan for a brand like us to come in and right. require it wasn't built storage. for that. Right. No, no. <laughs> no. So we were like, all right, so we got to find something. So I'm driving around DC looking for anything with a parking lot. And lo and behold, there's this old chicken and fish shack that didn't look like it was, you know, in the safest of places, but it was there and it had a huge parking lot. And I was like, man, if I could get this spot, I could drop a reefer trailer freezer and we can produce out of here until we can find a manufacturing facility that will do this for us. Um, So I ended up, you know, negotiating with that landlord and getting that temp space to scale the product out of the back of the drive-thru. Wow. Now, one thing we flew right past was kind of the the kind of the transition to the product that you're selling now. And, and now, was that your idea to do the biscuits, rolls, and scones? And how did you de- decide that those were going to be the three? You know, how did that whole process work? So we, we always just started with biscuits. So scones and rolls launched last year. And the scones and rolls were actually consumer inspired. We, um, you know, again, leveraging social media and communications with our customers, we really figured out um, a a good mechanism to kind of exchange with them. And so we did a little survey of them and some focus groups of folks at our restaurant to figure out what was the next product that they wanted to see. And we used to get all these requests for sweet biscuits all the time, which is essentially a scone. scone, And then we used to sell little pastries when our pastry shop was bored, he'd make little things. So a couple of times we sold cinnamon rolls made out of the leftover cuts of the biscuit dough and they sold like hotcakes. So they were like, <laughs> no well, I intended. really wish. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so there, you know, customers always be like, Oh, can, can, when are you going to bring those back? When are you going to bring this back? And lo and behold, they became some of the most top requested items in that survey that we did. So wow. that's really what led to the customers always, always, always have been at the centerfold of our innovations. That's pretty amazing. And do all three kind of have the same freezing instructions or come packaged similarly? Yes. What does that look like? Yeah. So, so another premise that we always promise is that there's one or, you know, very simple one to two step cooking process. So with the biscuits and skins, you literally throw them on a baking sheet and you bake them and done. And yep. don't even, you don't even thaw them. And then on the cinnamon rolls, you just open it up, take the icing out, put it in the oven, and then you ice them. They come in a tray too, so you don't even have to move oh, them. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, so it's you know the premise of making home-style baking simple You know, is really what resonated. People don't want to sit there and cut it out. Like even the pop and fresh tin stuff, right? Like right. <laughs> you're still like peeling yeah. that stuff back and hoping for the best. <laughs> you know, this was our way of making yeah. sure that it turned out as handmade as possible every time. Really, really cool. So you're in the no, back, back in your story now. You're into in the rented out chicken shack. Um, at what point did you go? Okay, we need to have some more scale, especially as you were growing. Did, and, and was that difficult to find? You know, the right partner, the right place to do the broader manufacturing production, I'll call it. Yeah, it was definitely hard. I mean, like you got to rem- remember again, when I started this business as a restaurant concept, right. I was looking for <laughs> and you you know, clean the biscuit. food business, right? No. So like, <laughs> you know, there was no, but even then like clean label baking, that's hard. That's why there's so few clean label breads out there because the baking industry is a multi-billion dollar, one of the most profitable industries in food. So telling them I want to make something that looks, feels, and tastes handmade was very scary. So they were like, no. you know. So I ended up finding um, another woman-owned manufacturing business down south, and she embraced us with open arms and helped us get scaled up within you know, honestly, four months. It wow. was pretty incredible. Um, but if it, wouldn't, it, w- if it wasn't for her 
helping us, you know, we would have never made the launch because we, right. we ended up getting Kroger and Publix and, you know, these big retailers. Um, and we were like, screw it. Every time <laughs> we thought we had enough in that trailer, <laughs> it would just go. Pick up more. Now, how did, yeah. I, I, I loved you used the word serendipitous uh, connections in one of your interviews. And I think that's so amazing um, and fun how, to see how things work out, right? Now, how did mm-hmm. um, Publix and, and the others start coming on? Did they see your product at Whole Foods or like, or was it you had someone no. selling in or what did that look like? No, my, my business partner and I literally went on LinkedIn and found <laughs> no their way. email addresses and were like, Hey, would you meet with us? And, and remind you, this is still back in the day, this category had no one doing anything right. cool, you right. know, so no for them to get a note. Yeah. So, so they knew we were like a small podunk company that had no idea what we were doing, but they took this chance and, you know, lo and behold, it's rewarded greatly. I mean, like we, we've grown those accounts year over year. We're stronger than ever. We have like placements like we have six placements seven it'll be eight placements at Publix now so you know wow. it's it was a long-term relationship and they treated it as such so you know our partnership with them was foundational that's awesome yeah I'm a big Publix fan I live in Atlanta uh-huh. um so as you started scaling you start your orders are increasing were you having to lean on others to help or did you have to look at additional funding like what kinds of things you know allowed you to scale does that make sense well, lucky for us, we still had the restaurant. So, oh, uh, you know, it. craziness was that the restaurant was helping us cash flow the CPG business up until it couldn't, got right? It. Okay. Um, so we were, and, and not only the restaurant, obviously, credit cards, you know, loans, <laughs> personal guarantees <laughs> out the ass. You know, it's not oh easy. You um, make it work. So but you had you orders, though. You had the difference here is you had customer demand. You had orders coming yes. in. You, sure, you had payment terms and whatnot to deal with. But I mean, like, at least you were getting getting sell-through. You know what I mean? I don't know. Correct. And that, and that's a really important distinction, Justin. So I'm glad you're breaking that up. I mean, like you, you only go this far if there's momentum and growth, right? right? Like we're financing growth, not loss. Right. Or inventory. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, for us, it was, it was not until 2018 that we had to raise capital. We raised our first seed round. Even then most of the money went to the restaurant because we were trying to open a different location. Sure. Um, so that we, you know, as you know, in the consumer products business, the cash is like, you know, in and out. Absolutely. So, you know, within the year, we more than doubled in size again. I mean, we've, we've tripled in growth year over year since we got started. So, wow. um, you know, with that strong of growth, we were able to also leverage our first um, series A raise last oh, year. Wow. Very good. Yeah. Okay. So. That's awesome. Now you also sell online on your website. How is that channel versus the retail channel for you guys? So we actually killed e-commerce back in 2019 because as a frozen brand, it's just, there's no there's ROI, no way. right? Got yeah. It. Yeah. Because so, when you click through, it goes over to your bakery and, and whatnot. Yeah. But we, but we ended up bringing it back because with COVID-19, the surge in demand and, you know, out right. of stocks were a huge issue everywhere. Couldn't get trucks to get there fast enough. So people were like, can, can you just sell them online? Can you sell them online? I was <laughs> so like, you, you know, turn the store back on. Yeah. That's we funny. turned it back on wow. and, you know, I'm really grateful we did because, the exposure that we got just by having the online store was momentous. It's been phenomenal for us to be able to ship samples across the country now too. So yeah, it it was a process, but we got it back up and running and it's, um, it's obviously not a core business line. No, it's not a core revenue maker, but it's, it's more for us an opportunity to remain, um, you know, brand building and awareness. Consumers are still very trained to look at white, box photography and a price because <laughs> so you know <laughs> Amazon's changed the world, right? 
So, so having that has really helped build, you know, grow the business on even in grocery. Yeah, I I think it, I'm not. I, I in fact I didn't know you had turned it off. So I assumed you know when I did my homework and was on your site and all that. Oh, of course they have a direct to consumer channel. But anyway, that's it's interesting. I didn't think about the frozen piece of that. Um, which which you know. D- you've got a lot of shipping concerns or not concerns, but just considerations. You can't just throw something in a a cardboard box. I mean, anyway, as you know. Um, Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's fascinating. So uh, where are you now? What, so we're opening things up. Markets are opening back up, you know, grocery stores have been sold out. Now they're restocking, getting close to, you know, we're not seeing the shortages anymore. Although there'll be a lot of action, I think not not just in grocery, but a broader um, industry this year. What does it look like for you guys? What are you guys expecting and what are you thinking about for innovation? Yeah, we're still growing, you know, three, three and a half X year over year. That's the plan for this year. We're in over 6,000 stores right now. So yeah, so it's been phenomenal. But, um, you know, the biggest thing that we're doing, and this is transformational for us, is since day one of having the frozen biscuit puck, the next, obviously the next day, right? Those customers are like, when are you going to make it a sandwich? When are you going to make it a sandwich? So, you know, that was the, that was the next step. And it took us five years but finally this May we're launching our um, biscuit breakfast sandwiches in Yum. Publix and Whole Foods and starting in May. So it's going to be a big game changer for us. So what's in the sandwich? Um, we have clean label uh, pork sausage. So mm. no nitrates, nitrates. Um, we also have the only 100% real egg certified by the American egg board. I know that what? sounds trivial, no, but great. you would not believe how much microwavable egg is pretty much stabilizer oil and filler versus actually eggs. Um, and then obviously our classic biscuit. So the, the combination of which we're lower in calorie than the competition, better quality taste, higher in protein, like it's it's a it's a game changer i mean there's one one singular competitor that we're we have in this category and it's going to be it's going to be a big feat but i feel like we can do it wow that's pretty cool man interesting any thoughts on club channel or would you need a different pack size or different shape or or combo pack or you know what i mean i'm kind of thinking outside the box in terms of yeah we're we're already in um costco currently with our biscuits we have a 24 pack biscuit at costco currently and we're hoping to be able to translate the um sandwiches for costco pack out as well before the end of the year so we want to get through the market launch in may and then we'll have some conversations in the club channel We've also actually um, just launched into the convenience channel. So we're launching into Circle K's in the southeastern region. So again, you know, having a microwavable format um, has been transformational for the business because I mean, that category is 9X. It's unbelievable. You know, I had, I mean, and, you know, I've, worked around retail and consumer products for a number of years, but I had no idea really the the volume of like breakfast food that goes through like a QT or a, a racetrack or, a, you know, a quick trade, but whatever. I mean, I, it's just mm-hmm. unbelievable. And you don't think about that as a, a channel, but I mean, there's, it's, it's a, a huge immediate consumption channel. Um, it so, is. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. So share with our audience, share with our audience, like two or three of your biggest lessons learned. I love to ask our entrepreneur guests this, and I know you've had many over the years, but what would be the, some advice you to offer to our listeners? Um, well, I, first off, I always tell people that, you know, you will make failures happen. You will not succeed every single time, but you can't, nothing that you do that you try your hardest at is a failure. It's a learning point. So um, that's something to, to definitely take into consideration. The other thing I'd say is learn to take constructive criticism. 
Um, I can't tell you how many folks I've talked to, how many investors I've talked to where they go, wow, you're such a breath of fresh air because you're not taking this personally. You know, right. I, it's, you know, it's easy to do that when you have a business or a brand or a product because it's your baby and you right. don't let anyone attack it. But you, you have to listen and realize that there's a nugget of truth to every criticism. You just got to pull that nugget out there and stop focusing on the negative. Um, and then I think the other piece of advice I'd say is don't be afraid to ask for help because you'll find it in the craziest places. I mean, oh, that's interesting. day one, you know, I was waking up bartender friends that literally must have just got in from a really heavy night out. And I was like 7 a.m. I was like, help, you know, and they came and they were slinging biscuits at this <laughs> random ass, you know, gelato factory, right. you know, like, and, you know, I had friends as spouses helping. I mean, I had, I had friends from Audi helping me to pack biscuits out on weekends, you That's know, like I, you would be surprised, but people that support you are willing to do because you go very far to help. Yeah. You. I think people want to be a part of something. You know what I mean? I, at the end of the day, I yeah. think people like being part of creating something. Absolutely. That's awesome. Um, I should share with our audience where they can find you, where they can buy the products so they can connect with you, social, et cetera. Absolutely. So our website is www.masondixiefoods.com and our um, handle is at Mason Dixie Biscuit Co on Insta, Facebook, and Twitter. Love it. I'm so excited for you guys. You guys are on a roll and can't wait to have you back on down the road as you continue to grow in new channels and new products. I really appreciate you being here today. Same here. Thanks for having me, Justin. The Contender Cast is sponsored by Henderson Shapiro Peck and powered by Contender Brands. You can download additional Contender Cast episodes directly via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, iHeartMedia, YouTube, and other preferred podcast platforms. If you would like to be a guest on the Contender Cast, connect with us at contendercast.com. This is Brian Benson reminding you that every winner started as a contender.